Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come together freely, to sing great songs, to read your word, what a gift, Lord, that is, and to thank you for your Holy Spirit and to ask that your spirit might take your words and might show us Jesus, that we might be attracted to him, obedient to him, committed to pleasing him. Lord, speak to us this morning, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we go. This should work. <clears throat> I did my PowerPoint and I sent it to Josh and Josh has put it all on the template for me and that's really nice. Uh, but I've never seen this before, so that's interesting. Works <laughs> <laughs> really good. I assume that diagram over there is supposed to be Jesus. When he had concluded saying all of these things, chapter 6 is all about the Sermon on the Plain, <clears throat> paralleling Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. There are some differences, so it's probably done on different occasions. When Jesus had finished that significant time preaching to the crowd, he then returned to Capernaum. Nahum is what it means, the village of Nahum. Nahum the prophet from the Old Testament is probably the village where he came from. Capernaum. Now, Jesus, prior to this, way back in Matthew, has moved from Nazareth and he's made Capernaum now his headquarters, his base of operations. It's on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, if you can imagine that. It's a city, a community of perhaps thousands of people, not hundreds of thousands, thousands of people. There was a Roman presence because it was a financial centre and so the Romans were there to keep the peace and to ensure taxes were being collected. There was no Roman legion in Israel until decades later when the legion under Titus would invade to conquer Jerusalem. So here we have a Roman presence, a centurion, and a centurion, as I'm sure you're aware, um, was over a, about 100 men. It could be as low as 60, often 80, but let's say 100 men. So there's He's a guy who's in charge, and often the centurions were those who um, were the best soldiers. They were the ones who had been promoted. Often in the Roman army, you joined when you were a teenager. Uh, we have evidence that there was one as young as 14 when he joined to become a legionnaire, a soldier, uh, one in all the way up to 19. So often in their teens, they would sign up for 20 years of service. And then as you got promoted through the ranks, to become a centurion, you had to be an outstanding soldier, and then you were placed in charge of, like I said, 100 soldiers under you. There were six centurions per cohort in the legion, and the top one of those, they were in a ranking system. The top centurion was often the oldest, the most senior, and often the most experienced, and also probably the oldest, which means he would be approaching retirement. So in your mid-30s to late-30s, having served 20 years in the Roman legion, and the Roman centurions were not married. They were forbidden. It was against their rules for them to be married. So they had servants, and often they might have mistresses or <clears throat> concubines or something like that. But if regularly, the centurions were transferred from one legion to another, and the only person that would go with them would be their servant. If they had a mistress, if they had um, a family, an uh, illegitimate family, they would have to stay behind. They were never transferred. 
So the centurions, by their very nature, developed a very close relationship with their servants who travelled with them. That's certainly the case here, that this centurion who has settled in Capernaum, could be transferred at any point, was there to ensure peace in the community and to collect taxes and so on, but he, unlike many Roman soldiers, identified with the, with the Jewish community. He liked them. Most Romans looked down upon the Jewish people, and most Jews couldn't stand the Romans. They were the invading presence and so on. But here is this centurion, um, still serving because we are told in verse 8 that he is a man under authority and he has soldiers under him. That's still the case, so he's still an active centurion. But here he is in Capernaum, and he's been there, I'm not sure for how long, but for long enough for him to be involved in the community, and his servant, it says, was highly valued by him. Well, that would indicate that the servant had served very loyally, faithfully, he was useful, obedient, competent, certainly loyal to him. And this centurion had, seems to be a man who had a good heart and good affections. But this servant was sick. Now, Luke, being a physician, doesn't give us a lot of details. You draw the parallel in Matthew chapter 8, you'll find out Matthew tells us that he was paralysed and that he was confined to bed, but Luke does tell us that he was about to die. He was on his deathbed, struggling to breathe, unable to move. And here is this centurion, who would have been a man of wealth, because the centurions were paid, once they got promoted to being a centurion, they were paid anything like about 15 times the wage of a soldier. And if you were the chief centurion, you were paid four times that again. So some of these centurions were incredibly wealthy people. On retirement, you would have been given a land grant, and that's uh, where they would then settle, where they could be recalled at any time to uh, help defend the the army, the empire. So here is this wealthy centurion with a servant that he loved and the servant is sick and he's tried everything. It's called the doctors, the doctors can't help. He has some connection with the synagogue because as you'll read, uh, he in fact built the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, he would have put the servant's name on the prayer list, I'm sure. He tried everything and nothing that he could do was helping. We're in a very similar situation, spiritually, and one day we'll be in a similar situation physically. This story reminds us certainly of our own mortality. What do you do when everything you try to do is not working? What do you do when nothing works? Well, what did this guy do? Verse 3 tells us, wonderfully, when the centurion heard about Jesus, when it's beyond you, now this will sound wrong, when it's beyond you, when nothing is working, ask Jesus to help. Now that sounds wrong because it's like, try everything first. Go to the doctors, do what you can, and then as a last resort, if you can't fix it, ask Jesus. That's why it's wrong. Jesus ought not to be the last resort, he ought to be the first point of call, shouldn't he? Well, here is this centurion. He doesn't know Jesus in terms of a faith. He's not a follower. We're not even told he's a, a, a God-fearer or that he is a believer. He probably is, but we're not told that information. When the centurion heard, it says, about Jesus. Well, just pause and think. One of the wonderful things about retirement 
And when you get a phone call saying, can you come and preach for us on Sunday? Because you're retired, you have all of this extra time. You can chase rabbits. You can chase rabbits all the way through the scriptures. You can do all sorts of things. So sometimes I chase rabbits this week. It was fascinating. I can't pass all of that on to you, but occasionally I will. This man heard about Jesus. Why? Well, because the Roman centurion is living in Capernaum. Jesus has made Capernaum his headquarters, his base of operations, if you like. And not only did (coughs) Jesus make Capernaum his base of operations, he did more miracles in Capernaum than anywhere else. That'll come out in Luke 10 as you move through the Gospel of Luke. And Capernaum becomes more accountable because of that, because of their lack of response to the multitude of miracles Jesus did there. Roman centurion hears about that. And the passage says that Jesus now has in fact returned to Capernaum. Jesus is back home. But not only that, Luke 4 verse 16 tells us that Jesus made it his custom on the Sabbath that he would go to the synagogue. This guy's in Capernaum. This guy built a synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus is in Capernaum. Which synagogue would Jesus go to? There's only one. He would go to that one. It's interesting to conjecture. I wonder if he went to the synagogue himself. Perhaps. I wonder if that's where he saw Jesus. Perhaps. So he heard about Jesus. He heard a lot about Jesus. He'd heard the stories and the um, miracles and the wonderful things he'd done. And there are several other instances of miracles in Capernaum that we won't go into right now. What does he do? He sent a delegation of Jewish elders to Jesus. In typical military fashion, he delegates the task to others. And he asks the elders of the synagogue to go and speak on his behalf to Jesus. Later on in the story, he'll tell us why he did that. But he basically says to them, you blokes know him better than I do. I'm a Gentile, in fact, I'm a Roman. Could you go and represent me to him? The interesting thing is, they did so. Jewish elders don't run errands normally for anybody. Senior leaders are not involved in that sort of menial tasks, particularly for Gentiles and most especially for Romans. But this one was an exception. They seemed to be keen, urgent to really help out. Of course we'll go. You stay here. You stay with your servant. We'll race off to find Jesus and to implore him to come, which is what they do. And when they get to Jesus, well, sorry, and his request to them is, come. Jesus, you have to be physically present to be able to heal and to restore my servant. And secondly, to heal him, to literally take him through this experience, rescue him from it, heal him, save him. And that's what he does. So he sends these keen elders off to find Jesus. They go, when they find Jesus, they plead with him earnestly, strongly, urgently. They, in fact, put their own spin on it. This is not what he said, and it's certainly not what he thought. And you'll find out in a moment that he changes, he has a second thought. The Jews argue, the Jewish elders argue, that this man is eminently worthy for you to grant this. He deserves it. He has earned it. You've got to help this guy, Jesus. Why? Well, because he loves our nation 
and he built us our synagogue. So Jesus, however busy you are, however tired you are, please help. They're arguing on the basis of merit. He's been a good guy, he's done good things, therefore he deserves good things to happen to him. This is wrong thinking. That's the thinking that is still current in our world today and it was certainly current way back then. Their conversation with Jesus reveals their reasoning processes. He is a good man, he has done good things, he needs and deserves your help and he is most worthy of it. This sort of reasoning is still around today. Sometimes we reason this way, incorrectly. If we do good, then God will see and reward us. If we do bad, then God will see and he will punish us. Which is why people will ask the question when bad things happen, why did this happen? We think there's, this is how God operates in the world, but it isn't. Many people still, as I said, think this way, but there's an apparent worthiness. We perceive either ourselves or others to be worthy, when in actual fact we are unworthy. Many people erroneously think that those who do good to others deserve to have good done to them in this life and the next, which is why people think that if I do good and my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then I'll get in, I'll be entitled to heaven. That's not how God operates. God knows how flawed we are, how broken we are, how wounded we are. God would never be so cruel as to base it upon works. And if it was based upon works, then there was no need for Jesus to come and die. The fact that God came in the person of Jesus to die for us demonstrates the falseness of that thinking and the amazing grace and love that God has for us. Wrong thinking. Now, this is the part of the story that just grabbed me when I read it the first time. I was not shocked, but I was sort of grabbed by it. Verse 6 says, And Jesus went with them. Jesus, they're wrong. When the rich young ruler came to you and said, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? You stopped him in his tracks. You said, why do you call me good? None is good, only God. Jesus doesn't do that here. He doesn't correct their wrong thinking, not yet. Why is that? Well, partly because Jesus was more concerned about that servant and having compassion for him. And the time would come to correct them, and that would be later, not now. So too, the kingdom of God advances through Jesus in this world, through his people, demonstrating compassion and kindness, love and mercy to others. The new commandment is, by your love for one another, other people will know that you are my disciples, loving others, caring for them. And I have been disappointed and sometimes a little bit angered by some of the Christian vitriol that is on YouTube where Christians are attacking Christians in differing over different points of interpretation or different attitudes of how to behave as a follower of Jesus in this world and they're doing it publicly. I think that grieves the spirit of God. Jesus is always open to sinners. He was always alert for hearts that were turned towards him. It's all the way through the Gospels. Jesus was approachable, he was reachable, in fact, he was reaching out. Luke will tell us later on, chapter 19, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. To seek. He's pursuing us as he is this servant and this centurion. 
while Jesus is moving, meanwhile, back at the house of the Roman centurion, he has had a message come back to him that Jesus has said, yes, he's coming. And he's also been informed, the Roman centurion has been informed of the message, the reasons that the Jewish elders gave to Jesus. He is worthy. He deserves it. He's a good man. And that's not what the Roman centurion thinks and he's going to reveal that to us. The Roman centurion was fully aware that he was not worthy of these favours. He was fully aware of his brokenness and so on. And we're in a similar boat. Once we see ourselves as we are, once we take into account not just our words and actions but also taking into account our tendencies, our thoughts, our desires, our motivations, we'll be delivered from any nonsense of thinking we are worthy before a God who knows us thoroughly. That certainly seems to be where this Roman centurion had gotten to. At one point he had thought, Jesus, you need to come physically and be present to heal my servant. Now his faith is growing and his reasoning A, I am not worthy, and B, you don't have to physically have to be here, in fact, which we'll get to in a moment. Let me share this with you because I think it's relevant for us. No one is able to understand Jesus or Christianity if they are not acquainted with their own sinful, evil nature. We don't know how bad we are, but we are not as good as we think we are. Nobody scores a 10, not every day. Jesus did, 10 out of 10. In fact, most of us don't even score a 10 on any day. The worst criminals have some good in them, I think. But even the best and the most godly of believers have some bad in them. Now, this is where I've got in my notes, talk to my wife. And then when I read my notes this morning, I went, that could be misunderstood. I'm not saying talk to my wife because she is a godly believer, but she's got some bad in her. Well, she does, but that's not why I put that in there. What I'm saying is talk to her about me. And she'll tell you that as on my best days, bad things come out. Don't talk to my daughter because she'll tell you far more than my wife will. Nobody scores a 10. There was a little girl who had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. When she was good, she was very, very good. When she was bad, she was horrid. That's what we are like, isn't it? We are not worthy. That's why we need Jesus, and that's why Jesus came. And this Roman centurion is processing all of this, and now this time, Jesus went with them, and while Jesus is on the way, he's not far from the house now, instead of the Roman centurion preparing his house and getting ready, he sends some friends. The centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, tells him three things. Just before we go off that, and I didn't get a chance to chase this rabbit, but I thought of it, and I would like to chase it a little bit more, were the friends that he sent Jewish or Roman? 
I tend to think they were Roman. If they're Roman, listen to the message that these Gentiles are saying to Jesus. Number one, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Don't go out of your way. I am not worthy to have you come to me. In fact, that's why um, I didn't go the first time. That's why I sent the delegate, because I don't deserve you to come to me. That's why I sent the elders. I'm not worthy to have you come. And then, uh, there it is there. But all you have to do, Lord, is say the word. Just say so and it will be so. I don't deserve you to come to me. I'm not worthy to come to you. But I've got a situation. If you just say so, just speak the word, it'll happen. It'll be so. Why? He's reasoned it through. For I am a man too under authority. And I say to one soldier, go, and he goes. I say to another one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. I know what it means to give an order. I know what it means for the order to be obeyed. I know what it means to be under authority. This centurion has total confidence that God was working in the life of Jesus. I perceive, Jesus, that you are in full submission to your commanding officer, to God, and that you can exercise your authority, of uh, your commission accordingly. You have authority over demons, over disease, over nature. When you speak, it happens. Which points us to the reality of Genesis chapter 1. God spoke and things happened. When Jesus heard this message from the centurion through his friends, the scripture says Jesus heard this and he was amazed, astonished, stopped in his tracks, never heard it before, never experienced it before. And in fact, Jesus is going to draw attention to it. Um, when Jesus heard what that man had said in terms of confidence in Jesus' word, he doesn't say it to the messengers, he turns and he speaks to the crowd that is now following him. And he basically says, listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel who has faith like that. Amongst all of God's people who have God's word, God's stories, who have all of the evidence that they should have great faith and a great God, I haven't found anybody like him. And he's on the outside looking in. And he has reason to the point of understanding that God is completely trustworthy, that God keeps his word. Faith pleases him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So Jesus was amazed. And every commentator you read on this story, they all do this. There is twice Jesus is amazed, same word, <clears throat> in the New Testament. Luke chapter 7, he's amazed at the faith of the Roman centurion. Mark chapter 6, he's in Nazareth, he's in the synagogue in Nazareth, and the text says, verse 6, that Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. I can't believe that you don't believe. Shocked him, astonished him just as much. Well, here is this Roman centurion, a very competent man who saw his need for help. 
He was a good man who saw that he was unworthy. He was a man who was willing to take Jesus at his word. And all of this in a Gentile, someone outside the covenant community. No wonder Jesus was amazed. And he says to the crowd, <clears throat> never found anyone like that in Israel. Now, if you, there's a real dispute, <clears throat> not now, it's past, I think, but there was a dispute between Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7. It's in fact the one story, it's the same story, it's the same instances, and Matthew tells us things that Luke doesn't and vice versa. So they can be reconciled together. Luke doesn't tell us this, but Matthew Henry points out that he thinks, according to Matthew's gospel, this is then what happened next. Jesus heard this, he says that to the crowd. You're a man of great, he is a man of great faith. Doesn't say to him, says to the crowd. It's an invitation, it's a challenge. You should be like that. But then, um, Matthew 8, 13. Jesus then told the centurion, Matthew Henry conjectures that at that point, the, Jesus is talking to the crowd and then over the hill or around the corner, the Roman centurion himself changed his mind and came himself out of his house and he went to Jesus. Because in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is speaking to the Roman centurion and Jesus says to him, go, as you have believed, so it will be done for you. And the scripture says, according to Matthew, and if the servant was healed at that very moment, go, return home. As you have believed, so it will be done for you. Luke tells us, then those who had been sent, the friends and the Jewish elders, returned to the house and they found the servant in good health. So the servant was healed. And it would appear that the Roman centurion had the experience of, I need Jesus to be physically present and he sent the Jews to get him. Then he changes his mind and says, actually, you don't need to be present. You can just speak the word. I bet you Jesus wanted to meet this guy. And then he himself probably came and has this meeting. We never read that Jesus got to the house. But here is some reflection. What did you see and learn about Jesus? Without being physically present, without seeing the servant, Without laying his hands on and touching him, Jesus restores health to a dying man by a single word. He speaks and he's cured. Jesus says so, it is so. He commands and all of creation obeys, except humankind. He's given us free will and a choice. And we have a fallen sinful nature where sometimes we are hesitant and or disobedient. And his amazing grace is patient with us. Just to help you reflect on this a bit more, if you were in the crowd that day, replay the story in your mind and imagine what was going on, what you were hearing. Or if you were one of the Jewish elders and you were sent with a message and you delivered that message, what do you learn about Jesus? Or if you're a friend of the centurion and you came on that second visit, how did you encounter Jesus that day? How did they encounter him? Because the reality is, we've heard about Jesus. We've read about Jesus. We know things about him, his power and his ability to save and heal and to help. And now we are invited 
to believe in him and in his word. He gives us the same invitation. Listen to what I say. I have not found faith in anyone like that. Step up, Jesus is saying. You become a believer like that. Take me at my word. Commit yourself to me, trust me, and fully obey me. And see what I can do in you and through you. Do you need to do what the centurion did? Not just hear about Jesus, but come to the point of asking Jesus for help. If you do need to ask Jesus for help, what would you ask him to do? And may, if that's your situation and you do ask the Lord to help you, then may what Jesus said to the Roman centurion be what he says to you. As you have believed, let it be done for you. He loves us. He cares for us. He's seeking us. He wants to help us. He wants us to be in a close relationship with him. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, dear Holy Spirit, try you in God, the all-powerful God, the God who is just and holy, the God who is all-knowing. You know us. You know that we are unworthy. And yet, Lord, you are gracious and kind and forgiving. Thank you for your amazing grace. Forgive us for our times of doubt or slowness and obedience. Lord, help us to be like a centurion, to hear about you, to go to you and to ask for help, and to trust you and to believe your word. Lord, may you have your will and your way in each of our lives. And everyone said...